think a lot of times in our jobs, we, we get into a habitual role. You know, if I'm a truck person, my thought process is, you know, forcible entry, get inside, get my search and get the saves, throw my ladders, get up to the roof and ventilate and, and create that vertical ventilation hole. A lot of times we do that irregardless of what the conditions are, are saying to us. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. From the Federal Resources Studio, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Hey, thanks for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. If you're a company officer or a command level officer, you know the job is all about decision making. The trick, of course, is to make good defensible decisions in a big hurry at a chaotic scene. So, how do you do it? Today's guest has some ideas that could help you make the right decisions under pressure. Nick Salome is a 36-year veteran of the fire service. 31 of those years were spent with the Arlington County, Virginia Fire Department. He was a fire EMS captain, too, and served as training program manager. And he's also a former chair of the Northern Virginia Fire Department's training committee. And Nick Salome joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Good afternoon, Scott. Pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. Most officers think they're making good defensible decisions most of the time. What do you think? Are they? I would agree. Most of the time we do think that we're making uh, correct decisions. You know, what? What part of what guides the decision-making process are our general standard operating procedures, rules and regulations, departmental orders, and other policies and, and procedures and our training. But, you know, the problem is when we come up against something we've never seen before where we may not have an SOP to guide us on that, we may not have the experience level to guide us on what we're supposed to do next. So that's where we kind of come into a, a questionable area, whether or not our decisions were correct or not. It sounds like what you're saying then is that decision-making is based on the level of experience you have. Is that right? Well, certainly the experience level is going to be beneficial. Experience is going to give you, uh, you know, it, the experience of seeing the same things over and over again or a variety of things over and over again. The standard operating procedures and some of those those written guidelines that we have those are established in advance for things that we can expect that we're going to be running into. That could be anything from personnel issues to fire incidents to your protocols for treating a cardiac arrest victim. That makes it a little bit easier for the company officer to make decisions because we already anticipate these types of calls or these types of circumstances. And so we have a written policy that guides us and that becomes our foundation that we make our decisions based off of. So certainly as we go through our careers and we start to experience different things, The more we see, the more easier we're going to be able to identify a situation, be able to determine, have I seen this before? And if I did, what did I do before and what worked for me before? And you have an opportunity for things to pop into your brain a little bit faster so that you can make those decisions. 
Let's talk for a moment about how we make decisions. You say that recognition prime decision making or RPDM is behind most decisions. What is that? Recognition prime decision making, RPDM, was created by Dr. Gary Klein. And probably the person that puts it in best perspective is a well-known risk manager, Gordon Graham. And the way Gordon describes RPDM is imagine your brain is a computer hard drive. Everything you do and experience in life and at work is loaded on that hard drive. So when you get involved in a task or an incident, your brain quickly scans your hard drive looking for a close match. When it finds a close match or key elements in a given situation, it offers recommendations so that you can deal with that particular circumstance. That is the RPDM method. Now, RPDM works very well, but it should not be used for every circumstance. It, it, it's an easy process to utilize, especially on the emergency scene when you don't have a lot of discretionary time, uh, but it certainly isn't the, the only process that should be used. So oftentimes people tend to use it as a default mechanism when in fact they should probably be thinking about some other things along the way. But it does help in, in situations where you've got little discretionary time, you need to make decisions immediately. There's four elements to, uh, to the RPDM process, and the first one is prototype match. Have we seen this before? Uh, second one is expectations. This is established by your prototype match, and what did we do before and what were the results? And then three is the evaluation. Is the course of action plausible? RD, RPDM is going to look at solutions and not necessarily the best solution, but something that's going to get you by and, and generally works out on, on the positive side. Fourth step of RPDM is the implementation stage. If course of action has a reasonable chance for success, it is implemented. And of course, if it doesn't have a reasonable chance for success, we modify the course of action or we pick another option. RPDM works well for recognized situations, but should not be used to make all decisions. In fact, because it's a model that's easily utilized in the workplace and works well, it's often utilized as a mechanism, as a default mechanism. All right. Another decision-making method is called classic decision-making or CDM. Is this the alternative to RPDM? Uh, it's, it's another method of making decisions. It's a very popular one. It's been taught for many years, and it's one of the best ways to make decisions if you have time and information. Now, on the fire ground, when we've got uh, lives trapped, we don't oftentimes have that discretionary time. In a situation like a hazardous materials call, it might work better because you do have that, that time available to you. You don't have to rush a hazardous materials incident in a lot of cases or a bomb incident, something like that, where you know in the first 60 seconds we're collecting information and making the area safe. The CDM also has a four-step process. Uh, the first step is aim. What do we expect to accomplish? Number two is the factors, anything that affects the decision. Three is the course. Establish three or more ways to accomplish the aim, which is your, your number one factor. And then the plan. Choose the best course of action and establish a plan to implement that course of action. Again, CDM works well. It relies on time and information, so it's not as effective as RPDM in emergency situations where a decision needs to be made quickly and there's no discretionary time available for in-depth analysis. Do people consciously choose a method like one of these, or do they just make decisions and then we find out later how the decision was made? Well, I think the RPDM process works a little bit easier for people. They, they naturally, uh, again, going back to Gordon Graham's analysis, you know, if your brain is a hard drive, you naturally are able to collect data, match it with what you've got on your hard drive and then come up with answers. You know, you're basically looking at a traffic incident. Hey, I've seen this before. When I saw this before, these are the things that I did and that worked reasonably well, so I'm going to do that again. And so they're, they're kind of repetitive things. You've seen it before. You've got a match in your brain that you can put together with it and allows you to start that process of, of just 
thinking naturally and making decisions naturally. A seasoned company officer, they get very seasoned, and I don't like to use the word routine when it comes to the fire service, but those everyday calls that they come to expect, you know, they get a routine where they go through the same steps and the same process. They're collecting the same information. Matches are automatically there on their brain. You know, they can easily roll through that circumstance, and their considerations are just happening very matter-of-factly without them even having to... Now, this sort of raises a red flag for me because we know that a lot of firefighters are not seeing a whole lot of structure fires these days, so they're getting their experience from training simulation scenarios. And I can see a situation happening where someone gets promoted to engineer and then makes it to captain and still has very little hands-on experience with fires in the field. And so how does decision-making get affected by that? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, as, as time goes on, our fire departments are becoming younger fire departments. Uh, the experience level isn't quite there compared to where it used to be. Training uh, regulations, you know, don't allow us to create uh, acquired structure fires where we could teach live fire training under real conditions. Uh, you know, training building, it, it's nice to have a fire in a training building, but it's not going to equate to what we're going to expect to see in a single-family house full of synthetics and, and the, uh, the, the rate of the heat release in that fire is going to be significantly different. So you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, you know, like most officers, there, there is going to be that trial and error period of time. Again, if your protocols and your SOPs are established in advance to anticipate a lot of the common calls that we're going to run, that makes it a little bit easier to, to do that decision-making. But, of course, you have to be familiar with those protocols and understand them and train on them regularly in order to be, have that become second nature for you. For the young officer, you know, uh, I was a young officer coming on to the department, and one of the things that I did was I recognized the areas that I didn't have a lot of experience, and I read books from people that had a lot of experience. And so even though I wasn't on those calls, their books oftentimes describe scenarios and situations that I could very easily relate to and get an, a mental impression in my brain to be able to recall that information and utilize it to my advantage. Uh, and that was very successful for me. So there is a combination of things that, that has to go into it. Your, your physical experience on the job, as well as the, the book knowledge uh, and the academics that go along with the fire service and, and really just understanding what you're supposed to be doing. And for the company officer, you know, that isn't a job that you, you take lightly. You've got other people on that apparatus that you're responsible for their lives first and foremost. And so you want to make sure that you're making the right decisions so that you're not jeopardizing them uh, with poor decisions. And I think one of the things that was a benefit for me as a young officer was I, I empowered my group to, to speak up. If you see something that doesn't make sense or something that I missed or you have a question about what I'm doing, speak up. You know, let's make sure we're all on the same page before we, we head into a vulnerable state. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. I'm going to go off the board here for a moment and talk about fire department culture. How much of a role do you feel it plays in decision makings and, as some people have suggested, does it sometimes trump SOPs and SOGs at an actual scene? Absolutely. 
you know, uh, the, the last handful of years, the fire service has been debating uh, fire service culture. You know, is that culture creating bad habits for us or is it creating good habits for us? And, you know, culture and tradition kind of go hand in hand. And we both know tradition in the fire service is, is a long history. But I, as well as some other people, would agree that some of that tradition is tradition we need to let go of because it's still dangerous. And it's not that, that tradition that we should celebrate. That's going on right now with uh, the new information from NIST and UL with uh, the fire science dynamics and modern fire tactics. You know, it's a change in, in how we did things before. Not necessarily what we did before was incorrect, but our understanding of what we were doing way back when is a little bit different today. Now we've got studies that actually show that, hey, this was a good action, but this action, you know, in some cases was creating more air to the fire and causing the fire to flare up even more or trigger events. Um, and so it's an ongoing debate that goes on. So it, it definitely plays a role, the culture of the fire service. And, and I think if you're a department that can have that opportunity to step back and, and really get a wide view of your department and see how people are thinking and if they're doing the right things, you know, you can significantly influence that as an officer and as upper management. And, and it's something that departments need to pay attention to. You know, sometimes we can get so stuck in what we do that we're, we're not seeing that we're not being effective or, you know, maybe we're operating under old protocols and regulations that, that should no longer be in service, and maybe we should go back and review those on a more periodic basis. How effective is the risk management model that says we'll risk a lot to save a lot and risk a little to save a little? So the risk management plan, this was something that was uh, that was created by uh, the late and great uh, Chief Brunacini. He had an act for making things very simplistic, and he had three three bullet points uh, with his risk management plan. That was that we will risk our lives a lot in a calculated manner to protect savable lives, we will risk our lives a little in a calculated manner to protect savable property and will not risk our lives for lives that are lives of property that are lost. That's real basic. You know, some people agree with this model. Some people don't agree with this model. But the, the basis is if you've got nothing else to operate on, this serves as a nice SOP right from the start. You know, look at your conditions, determine, you know, what is savable. Do, do my conditions show that I've got available space in that structure, that somebody could be in there that's still survivable, and can I make my way in there safely and pull them out? Or, or is it a well-involved structure where there's just absolutely no space anywhere that looks like it's not involved in, in heavy fire? And that would be a situation. Okay, let me step back a little bit. Let's get this fire under control, and then we'll get inside and, and do a primary search uh, very quickly. But this is like a bare minimum. It, it, it just helps you if you've got nothing else to go on. If you think this way, you know, if I'm going to risk my life and my crew's life, am I pretty much assured that I'm going to have a successful outcome on the back end of this? And if not, then that's where you go to the to the middle one and you, you calculate and decide, okay, I, I'm not going to be able to do this 100%, so what can I do to make it safer, whether I apply water over here and enter over there, vice versa. And then obviously if it looks like it's a complete loss from the start, then, you know, you're going to want to act very cautiously, maybe start in defensive mode and then see if you can't turn that around to, to make it more offensive as you go along. So, again, it, it, it's a starting point for us. Uh, and if you've got nothing else, you know, just like an SOP, it lays a foundation for you to start to operate off of. One more issue I wanted to address is what we see on YouTube, which is people commenting, often firefighters commenting, that a situation they're looking at, they wouldn't have done it that way. I'm thinking specifically of Pete Dern falling through that roof in Southern California. You know, many firefighters got on there and said, well, they shouldn't have put him up on the roof in the first place. 
How do we make decisions that stand up to scrutiny after the event is over when everybody says, well, you should have or you shouldn't have? Well, that's a good question. You know, I've seen that video myself and, you know, I I questioned it as well. I think a lot of times in our jobs, we, we get into a habitual role. You know, if I'm a truck person, my thought process is, you know, forcible entry, get inside, get my search and get the saves throw my ladders, get up to the roof and ventilate and create that vertical ventilation hole. A lot of times we do that irregardless of what the conditions are are saying to us. You know, if I've got a well-involved attic space, that's probably not the space I need to be up on top of. So that's kind of the risk and benefits you have to weigh, you know. And if I've got an unoccupied structure where three-quarters of the structure is on fire, and I'm trying to ventilate that roof, am I really accomplishing anything? You know, because we all know that house is going to be torn down and they'll build a new house. So, you really have to think about what you're doing and, and what's the end goal. And, you know, I, I think you hit on a key point, you know, the, the, the fact that if we don't conduct an after-action analysis following these incidents, then we can't even discuss what happened on the incident, you know. So you have to have some method to go back and look at what we did. Sometimes it starts with a tailboard talk at the battalion chief's buggy in front of the structure before everybody leaves. Uh, but it should be followed up with some type of critique process or post-incident analysis. And that way it gives an opportunity for everybody to talk about the different roles, what the circumstance was, and why people did the things that they did. Uh, and if you're being open and honest with each other, yeah, hopefully that's a professional conversation there where nobody gets bent out of shape. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're able to kind of look in the mirror and say, yeah, you know, we did this. And after the fact, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know, so I'll give that more consideration in the future. It's very important to do the post-incident analysis after the fact. There's something to be learned on every incident, and certainly that helps to, to uh, build on our decision-making process. You know, if we think that everything we do is perfect and great all the time and we never scrutinize ourselves to find out, hey, in fact, we could have done it differently here, then we're never going to get better. So we always have to kind of keep ourselves uh, vulnerable to to picking apart what we do on a regular basis and learning from every single call. Even if it's, you know, the most mundane item, there's still something to be learned, whether it's a medical call or structured fire call. All right, Nick Salome, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks very much. And we put some more information about decision-making at the scene on our website at code3podcast.com slash decisions. Check it out. Now, here's the trivia question. What's a fire, Mark? I'll have the answer right after this. If you like Code 3, you'll love the Code 3 Bull Session. It's more discussion with our guests on any topic. Sometimes it's serious. Anywhere from fourteen to 18,000 volts of electricity shot into my right hand and exited my right leg and right arm. Spent about four and a half months in a burn unit. Sometimes it's not so serious. And once again, I, I refer to the late Chief Brunacini. I can remember when his book first came out, Fireground Command, there were people that were ready to hang him in effigy. And, and nowadays, we refer to him as St. Bruno. But it's only available to patrons of Code 3. Find out what you've been missing. Go to Code3Podcast.com slash support. Pledge just $10 a month to support Code 3, and you'll get immediate access to all the bull sessions in our library and future interviews as we post them. Become a patron today. And thank you, Blaine Donovan, for your pledge. Here's the trivia answer. A fire mark was a metal label or shield placed on the front of a building back in the early days of firefighting. It identified what company insured the structure, 
Allegedly, so fire brigades paid by competing insurance companies wouldn't waste their time putting out a fire there. After all, a guy's got to get paid, right? All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Send me feedback by email. I'm always looking for it. Scott at Code3Podcast.com. Come on back. Next time I'll be back with more. I hope you'll be here. I'm Scott Oren. Until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is made possible through the generous support of Federal Resources. Visit them at federalresources.com. This show is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to code3podcast.com.